All right. Welcome, everybody, to Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 2. Um, last time, we, we ended off the Zohar, interestingly, uh, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Leon, yes. about a really, I don't know, just a very cryptic vision that's had by uh, Rabbi Hayya. And the, basically, to, to sum it all up, Rabbi Hayya is taken up to the Academy of Heaven, up to the Academy of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Ah, Baruch Abba. Fadda. Uh, hopefully more people will trickle in. Hey, wow. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Amazing. Good to see you too, my friend. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Unbelievable. All right. Now it's a party. All right. told me. Yeah. It's coming, so I'm testing the... No so worries. One three seven. One three seven nine, and then unlock, and then five three one. Exactly. Sorry if anybody has trouble getting in there. It's like getting for for good reason. Yeah. Um. So we left off last time. We were basically rushing to try to get through this story, but I could you know take a little bit more time with you guys in, in the Zohar. It's actually a very interesting, almost like a psychedelic vision, uh, that's had by this guy to be and. He is taken up to the Heavenly Academy of Rabbi Shimon, and you could kind of put yourself in his shoes and imagine what this is like. Um, and I see it almost the same way as anybody with any kind of vision, having these different characters in the dream. You would take that character, you would say, all right, what, what does this person represent? What is the symbolism of what's going on? So uh, Rabbi Haya is taken up. Um, and he sees uh, Rabbi Shimon. He's he's basically placed at the feet of Rabbi Shimon, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who's basically the most important Kabbalistic type of rabbi uh, of the Emoraim because they attribute the writing of the Zohar to him, of course. Um, <clears throat> and we hear these these different pesukim. Uh, oh, hi, hidden, amazing, perfect, hidden, concealed ones, open-eyed, roaming the entire world, gaze and see. Oh, low sleeping ones, closed eyes, uh, closed eyed, awake. Uh, so it's telling people wake up from your from your slumber. It's like this sudden jolt of trying to to wake up, which is what a lot of this spiritual type of thing is very often about. Who among you turns darkness into light, bitter into sweet, before arriving here? Who among you awaits each day the light that shines when the king visits the dull and is glorified, declared king of all kings of the world? Whoever does not await this each day. In that world has no portion here. Wow, Biruchim Abayim. Now it's a party. Unbelievable. All right. Welcome, welcome. I was born a party. Yeah. <laughs> so we started talking about this, this very interesting vision had by Rabbi Hiya. Um, and Rabbi Hiya is taken up into the heavenly academy of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And so he. this is the Amoraic period. So I would say around the year... 200-ish. Uh, Rabbi Hittery would give you uh, a more <laughs> more precise answer than that. So Exactly, yeah. So that's about the time. But this is being written many, many years later. So this is being written maybe 1,200 years after. Exactly. This is really like a 1,000 years later. Um, so Rabbi Shimon initially told, he said, let Rabbi Haya enter and see how HaKadosh Baruch Hu intends to rejuvenate the faces of the righteous in the time to come. So you could think about this as Judaism's way of talking about this olam haba is, it sounds like it's so out of touch. It sounds like it's so out of grasp for, for us. But those who are involved in the mystical experience will tell you 
This is not something that needs to happen after you die. This is something that can happen right now mm -hmm. in a vision right now. For all I know, Joe is having this experience right now. Yeah. Sure. The building looks closed. I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, the lights in the hallway. Yeah. Thank you. The building looks the like it's closed. Yeah. 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 Turn them on because I went downstairs. We were in Morris Benz doing Morris. Okay. Yeah. 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 Ye
This is the Mashiach is addressing Remishim on Bar Yochai. He says, Rabbi, happy are you, Rabbi, for your Torah ascends in the 370 lights, right? So it's a, your Torah is ascending into all the Sefirot. It's almost like a chandelier. The light enters into this glass and it's refracted in all different ways beautifully. Your Torah enters all these, right, 370, uh, each and every light refracting into 613 senses, right? So it's like fractals. Every single one of the 370 itself has 613, representing what? Tariag mitzvot, the, the 613 mitzvot. Because like the like the Mishnah says, we read it at the end of a class, we say, Rabbi Hananiah, Menakasha, Amir, which means Hashem wanted to give us a gateway to Him with each and every mitzvah. Each mitzvah on its own would have been enough. Dayenu. I only needed netilat yadayim, like it's very zen, right? In order to get to God, all I needed really was netilat yadayim. But Hashem was loves us so much, He says, let me give you 613 different doorways. What does senses mean? The trans- oh, good question. Into 613 senses. Yeah, it doesn't, it's it's translated from Aramaic, so it's hard to tell. Hmm. That's a great question. But maybe, you know, if you have any thoughts on that, I would love to hear. But yeah, it's it's something to do with different gateways and different pathways. And it's all within this framework of the Sifirot. Somehow each of them opens up into a whole gateway. And 613 times this many you don't have to get so much into the numbers. Just the concept is really beautiful. Anything you're doing, if done mindfully in a relationship with God in a loving way, can bring you to a mystical experience, to one such as the one that's being had here by the Bihaya. Yeah. Didn't you mention, though, that you said it's taking place in Alan Haba? So it's in his vision in the Academy of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And we're gonna, that's a good question. We're going to see right now that exact question is going to come up. Good question. Um, and what's happening? Ascending and bathing in rivers of pure balsam, right? So all, all these sadikim, as they ascend, what happens? They're, oh, the Torah this, uh, ascends and, and all these people go in. And the, the mitzvot themselves almost, or uh, the, your Torah, Rabbi Rabbi Shema is told, it's swimming in these rivers of besamim. And it comes from Midrash talking about that the sadikim and Allah Mabba are going to be able to swim in rivers of besamim. It's supposed to be a, a, a deeply symbolic thing, and we're going to see soon enough, you know, in Parashat Noah, Vayarah Adonai Hanihawah, this idea of a good smell, and the besamim in the Mishkan, right? Rabbi Sassoon would say that the, the besamim is supposed to be inviting the Navi to come in and meditate there. The, the Mishkan was not just supposed to be something you go once a year. It's, some, it's a place of meditation, and like the incense that they had, like we have today, I'm sure it was very special in some way, but it had a way of setting the mood. Mm-hmm. Um, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, sets his seal on the Torah of your academy and the academy of Hezkiyah, Melech Yehuda, and of the academy of Ahayah Shiloni. Very interesting characters that is being compared to because Hezkiyah, who was one of these very, very righteous kings, and Ahayah Shiloni is almost the man of legend. He he was the one who told Yeravan ben Nevat that we're taking away the kingdom from the south and giving it to you in the north. But bottom line is, uh, he w- he was also known as a master of secrets of Torah, as you should know. So that's, and he's also the teacher of Eliyahu Hanavi. So Ahya Shiloni was told by the Mashiach that he's getting the stamp of, of approval. 
And so was Hizkiyahu, who was an extremely righteous, and so too you, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So it's this very epic spiritual experience that Rabbi Haya is, you know, lucky enough and fortunate enough to experience as part of his small revelation. And what happens? I have not come to set my seal on what issues from your academy. Rather, the master of wings has entered here, for I know he enters no academy but yours. So he's saying, I don't even need to give you my stamp of approval because I see already the chief angel is here. And now something really beautiful happens. Then Rabbi Shimon told him, right? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai now is revealing to the Mashiach something that already transpired, which is the oath that the master of wings had sworn, right? That the, the chief angel told them about God's swear, which was that he will never abandon his dull. He will never abandon the Shekhinah, his presence with and among B'nai Israel, among each and every person. The Where Mashiach, say it again. Where does God promise that? This was earlier on in this vision. Oh, he said he's not I, I kind of sped through it. So the Mashiach began trembling and cried aloud. The Mashiach himself is crying. The heavens trembled, the vast ocean trembled, Leviathan trembled, and the world verged on overturning. At that moment, he noticed Rabbi Hayah sitting at the feet of Rabbi Shimon. He said, who placed a human here clothed in the garb of that world? Meaning, why is there a person here of flesh and blood? Right? So it's almost like it, it reminds us again, oh, this is all within Rabbi, Rabbi Hayah's mind. So imagine you're having... Exactly. It's an incredible thing. But before we even get to this part, because it's very, very important. How beautiful is this? Because who does the Mashiach represent in the ego structure in the psyche of each and every one of us, including in the psyche of Rabbi Hayah. I think the Mashiach represents, which is what I, for everybody, is the salvation. It's this idea of evil can and will be reformed into goodness. One day it will all make sense. One day we will see only the light. One day the Or Hagganuz La Sadiqim, the light which is hidden away for the Sadiqim, will be revealed. And the Mashiach is the one to bring about that era and that epoch of absolute tranquility. And that's something, no matter who you are, no matter how enlightened you think you are, we're all looking for that and we're all craving that. But more than anything, what's happening? This Mashiach represents all of that. What is he driven to cry and tremble and quake from? God's swear. God's swear that he loves you, that he cares about you, you individual as an ego. That's something that cannot be stated forcefully enough because very often in these spiritual pursuits and the mystical experience and all this stuff, we're trying to lose ourselves. We're trying to get away from ourselves. Like, uh, like you said, right, like a bandit, trying to uh, steal something to the, the beat of his own drum. Oh, searching for a fugitive. Searching for a fugitive, exactly. Like, you know, carrying a large drum. Exactly, you know? right? And and the irony is you're the one who's doing, look, you, you can't get rid of yourself. And the beauty here is this relief, which is God loves you as you are in the here and now. And the Mashiach himself starts crying just from hearing that in the vision of Rabbi Hayah. And now Rabbi Hayah is noticed in the midst of all of this. He himself, who was having the vision, is a character in this vision, which is an incredible thing, because if you're having a dream, 
normally the dream, okay, you're just outwardly focused. But then when the focus goes on to you, that's when you have the opportunity to look for what's looking. I've had dreams where that's kind of a little bit lucid. It could happen right now because life itself is like a lucid dream, but it could happen in a dream as well. So to be is reminded of himself. And the question that's placed before him, or really to Rabishim on, is Rabishimon, why is this student of yours still here as flesh and blood? Right? So you were asking about Olam Haba. Let's see, what does Rabishimon answer? Rabishimon answered, This is Rabihaya, radiance of the lamp of Torah. He is my student, Yani. He is because the lamp of Torah is known as Rabbi Shimon, and he is the radiance of the lamp of Torah. He's my student. The Mashiach said, let him be gathered in together with his sons that they may, may become members of your academy. Let them die a physical death so that they can ascend now to the, these spiritual heights. This is something that the mystics have always struggled with. This difference between the physical plane in which we exist and these supernal visions and feelings and experiences that almost require us to leave behind, seemingly, the physical and the mundane. So the Mashiach is saying, let him die to join with us. Rabbi Shimon said, let him be granted time. Time was indeed granted to him. He emerged trembling, his eyes streaming with tears, quivering, he cried, Happy is the share of the righteous in that world. Happy is the share of the son of Yohai who has attained this. Of him is written so that I may endow those who love me with substance and fill their treasuries. Right. So this is so moving and so beautiful, I think, because this vision hits on so many common concepts and very important concepts within the mystical experience and within the spiritual journey that a lot of us are on. And it reassures you that you don't have to die in order to experience this. One day you will die. Don't worry, that's going to come. But right now, play this contradiction. Be that contradiction of this human of flesh and blood who also experiences these supernal visions and dreams and whatever happens to you. Right, supernal yeah. being like uh, of a very high level and on the spiritual echelons in a way. It's like a, a word that Rabbi Akiva Tatsi still loves using, or still loves using. He's still alive. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a uh, it's kind of like the highest levels of of spirituality. Um, so here the the note here says, "Let him be granted time. Let Rabbi Hayah remain alive on earth a while longer." And if you look in the Zohar and other places, Rabbi Shimon intercedes with God to spare the life of Rabbi Yitzhak when it was decreed that he was to die. The theme of a holy person remaining on earth appears in a contemporary 13th century Spanish hagiography, Vida de Santa Oria, composed by Gonzalo de Berceo. Uh, there, Saint Oria ascends to heaven and sees her reward as a throne, but is told that for now she must return to earth and continue her spiritual practice. So this is something that repeats itself over and over again in a lot of different forms of literature of your work here is still not done. And if anybody's ever seen the anime show uh, Attack on Titan, it actually uses Kabbalistic imagery constantly. There's literally Sefirot when he gets to the, the gates of heaven. And the message of the show really is you're going to knock on, the, on heaven's gate, but you still got work left to do on earth. Uh, I think this is really, really beautiful stuff. So now we'll pivot and maybe we'll return to some Zohar stuff 
uh, before the end. We'll pivot to some of the Eastern stuff like we usually do. Um, so I was listening to uh, one of the books by, by Thich Nhat Hanh. And he talks about the, an interaction between the Buddha and one of his students named Vasigotra, uh, who was looking for some kind of answer. And the students surrounding the Buddha all knew what the Buddha usually answers to whatever query that Vatsigotra had. But for some reason, the Buddha remained silent to Vatsigotra. And then afterwards, the students and then Vatsigotra walked away. And then the students said, Buddha, why did you not answer Vatsigotra as you have always answered us? And he explains Vatsigotra was looking for a theory. He says, what we're doing is not about a theory. What we're doing is about a path. It's about an experience, more or less. So I thought this is a great way to, to begin this part of the class because so often when we talk about this stuff and when we indulge in the words and I, I began last class with there's nothing really for me to teach and we're just going to try to have a fun time together. Amen. But the beauty here is that we can try to remind ourselves of this. That the, this class and this experience and these words are not meant to just accrue knowledge in your brain. That's valuable too, if it's going to lead you to an experience. But ultimately, that's what it's about. It's not just about accumulation of knowledge. It's really about the experience of being with God. And like I always say, I love the idea of spiritual psychotherapy, spiritual ophthalmology. That the whole point of this is to see more clearly. As they say, the diamond that cuts through illusion, right? The prajna paramita. That is supposed to be something that is cutting directly now through this dream, through this illusion. And coming off of this whole discussion of Rabbi Hayah, I think is really incredible because we can relate to that. We know what it's like to have a dream that's symbolic. With Thank, them. You. Lila Tuff, thank you for coming we know what that's like and when we experience that we come back to ourselves and I say oh okay how do I put this all into perspective well you can do whatever digging you want to do don't get too far into it you don't have to you know psychologize and therapize yourself constantly a lot of this work is really about letting go and we spoke last week about Ram Das, his guru, noticing Ram Das being so angry. And he goes up to Ram Das. He says, Ram Das, you're angry? He says, yeah, I'm angry. He says, okay, let it go. He goes, what do you mean by He's like, no, just, just let it go. For him, it was that simple. And I mentioned in the beginning as well, for me personally, and I'm sure for a lot of you, a lot of what's at the heart and soul of this is a chronic feeling of unworthiness or a chronic feeling of Something's not quite right in any given moment. And the point of this path is to let go of that. You're feeling unworthy? Let it go. Notice it. Love it. Like you would any other thought or any other feeling. Let go of anger. Let go of sadness. Just let go. Um, another great quote uh, by the Buddha. For 45 years, I have not uttered a single word, he said. What does that mean? For 45 years, I've not uttered a single word. Well, the point of it is not about the words. 
I mean, I think he. Uh, this is attributed to the Buddha. Who knows if he? Yeah. <laughs> but but basically, yes, it's supposed to be kind of understood. It's, it's almost like a coma. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Fake news. But. Broke the spirit of that line. Said again. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 45 years and now I threw it out the train. <laughs> well, I'm the only one who that stays silent. <laughs> ah, exactly. <laughs> if you thought you were hearing words, oh, no, you weren't hearing words. You're just hearing sounds. Right? You're just hearing different sounds. You thought I was speaking words, but they were just sounds, maybe. Um, I wrote here just different thoughts that I had. Craving and aversion as illusions because they are future-oriented. So we talk about this moment being all that really is. What is craving? What is aversion? Craving is something that and we, we we spoke about this when uh, we were at the fish show in uh, Washington State. I had a whole long conversation with you that that day. The beautiful rolling hills. I still remember the way it looked at the gorge, and you know this idea of craving and aversion being something that occurs in this moment, but they're always future oriented. I'm craving something in the future. I have aversion towards something that I think can happen in the future. But really, if all there is is what is right now, then what are we really talking about? We're just talking about an immediate feeling. I interpret it as craving something or aversion, but it's just a sensation right now. So don't give it too much power. Right? Don't don't get lost in it. Um, the word nirvana we always talk about means phew, means the breath out. Literally, that's what the word nirvana means. What's a similar word in English? Despair. Despair, we think of as a terrible thing. Yeah. Losing hope. Exactly. Exactly. It's like expiration. We think of that as a bad thing as well, right? But it's also relief. This is a yoga term. Yes. It's very often used. You know, and and... I thought it was like enlightenment. It is. It is. Exactly. But it also is the shortish, like, you know, is the breath out. Yeah. It's this relief of, oh my God, this whole time I thought X was true. I thought reality was as such the story I was telling. But now I realize it's just this. That's the the experience. And there's a beautiful meaninglessness that comes from this. People are also have this aversion towards meaninglessness. But it, when, you, when you think about it, the meaning that people are often seeking is ver- is almost in con- almost invariably a meaning directed towards their ego, right? It's the meaning of the of the world or my world as it relates to me, which is a figment of my imagination. So the relief of that suffering is the meaninglessness. When it doesn't need to have an external meaning. But at the same time, you can't say, oh, it's all absolutely meaningless, because that's a concept as well. It's not meaningful or meaningless. It just kind of is. And it's the same thing as saying, oh, there is a God. There is no God. Well, it's ineffable anyway. You could talk about it in this term and you could talk about it in that term but at the end of the day just come back to the experience um so now what i'd like to do is i'd like to just read a few different 
um, haikus with you because I think they very beautifully emote this type of experience. You know, uh, you light the fire. I'll show you a great big ball of snow. Wow. Like something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like seeing the world through the eyes of a child where you look at something and it's immediately just there. Removal of all this story of what I did in the past, what I'm projected to be doing in the future. I'm just here now. Right, and I, the second I said I'm just here now, Erwin Dayan is popping up. Baruch Abada ID. He's connecting to the audio still. Um, so uh, we're, we'll, let's read a couple of more of these. Baruch Abada ID. Perfect timing. Um, you're here now, ID. You're muted. I said I'm sorry, I'm late. I took your cousin out for dinner. Always, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's married to my cousin, so it's not. <laughs> I told her, come on, finish. No dessert. I got to go get to Mikey. I love it. I love it. Tell her to come next time. <laughs> We're going to surprise you one night. Me and her are going to come in. A hundred percent. I can't wait for that day. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, we'll, we're we're doing some uh, some haikus. Uh, so let's look at this one. How admirable he who thinks not life is fleeting when he sees the lightning. Right. Very often, oh, we're going to philosophize. The lightning it was there, and then it went away so quickly. How admirable he who thinks not life is fleeting when he sees the lightning. How amazing it would be if we just saw the lightning. It's a brain teaser. A brain teaser right? again. How admirable he who thinks not life is fleeting when he sees the lightning. So when lightning, lightning it makes you think that life is fleeting? So he, this is saying it's admirable... It could do all of those things. But the most admirable thing this is saying is not to think that. It's not to think anything. It's just to, just to see the lightning. Say it again. How admirable. He who thinks not life is fleeting when he sees the lightning. What if you could just see the lightning? Something uh, would be frightening. to create a mental narrative around that. Exactly. exactly. That's exactly right. Meyer's been a person that's taught me that better than anybody in my in the history of my life. Where you get these haikus? This is all from Alan Watts's uh, book, uh, The Way of Zen. I should bring it in. Uh, it's a great book. It's uh, highly recommended. It's still haiku. So it's H A I K. Yeah, no, it really does. It's so philosophical. It's like five It's It's incredible. Exactly. It's very well put together. That's exactly right. Idea. Really? No. Great Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my God. I gotta see those. You are. Or Victor, if you're listening to this on the recording, we want to see your haikus. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he listens usually on Spotify afterwards. Okay, here's another fun one. The long night, the sound of the water says what I think. It's another way of putting it. Right? Just the sound of the gushing water says what I think. Because they it takes the place of my thoughts. Just the sound takes the, So when Joe and I just went to the banyas. I wish I knew I would have invited you all. <laughs> but, you know, I have this experience very often. The moment I'm coming out of a very hot sauna and you're dying and you're foggy and that's just the nature of the sauna. And then you, the moment you hit the cold, 
your thoughts are almost gone for that exact split second. And you just hear the sound of the water. And that's that's the experience we're talking about here. This is, I think, what saves people from psychosis. I see psychosis all the time. And I see it as very much the ego clinging to a worldview of itself at which it is the center. Either in a persecutory way of I am at the center of this tremendous conspiracy in which I'm being targeted by the FBI, the CIA, and the Mossad at the same time, or in a very grandiose way where really I am God, or I'm the Messiah, or I am well known to the best celebrities in the world. These are all the ego's attempts to continue constructing a narrative because it's afraid because it doesn't know how to just let that go. You ever, uh, you ever see a patient? Say it again. You ever see a patient who claimed they were God? Yeah, my first patient ever in my second year of medical school. He told me he's above God. He's above God. He told me he God. met God. He met the, he met Satan. He told me that Satan and God got together to give him this this mission of being who he is, mm. because he, he he as he put it. Someone's got to do it, you know, like, kind of like that. Yeah, that was very <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. I know this guy was—he hallucinated during the interview. The first, so the first interaction with this guy was really incredible. It was me and Doctor A Rod. I called him Doctor A. Doctor, I don't want to say his name yeah. on the <laughs> podcast, but but yeah, it was not actually Alex Rodriguez. Similar sounding name, you could probably imagine. And uh, he tells me, oh, do I have a, a good patient for you? This is my first interaction with any psych patient uh, in medical school. And I said, okay, great. And I read a little bit about him, quite a crazy you know, story. He was an English professor. Wow. And uh, before he, you know, kind of decompensated. And uh, I don't even know who it was yet by face. And I'm walking in the hallway and some guy goes up to me and he says, you're hiding your powers. And I said, who, who me? I, I'm hiding my powers. He goes, yeah, I know who you are. I go, who am I? He says, you're Michael. You're, you're Michael the Archangel. And I look down. I'm like, please, God, let there be a name tag. And there was one. I'm like, all right, he's not a prophet at least. <laughs> Thank God. So, uh, and then what did I say? I said, yes, I am. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Now they teach you you're not Our supposed to. It's like it's like Our it's like a Christian. Isn't that like an evil? Angel? It's not an evil. That's like the fallen angels, but it's a Christian thing of like, like a lower level, a third level. Uh, yeah, okay. something like that. Exactly, okay. like uh, Gabriel, Michael. Yeah, come down a lot to earth. Yeah, the exactly. They're very involved. So he, so he, and I've I've gotten this a lot because I wear this kippah, mm -hmm. and people very often think that I'm some kind of divine being. Um, you know, and it's a it's a very interesting thing when somebody does that to you because it makes you very aware, very self conscious. Like I don't want to ruin this. Maybe I am. You know, <laughs> you feel that yeah. it's ego though, because that he's like kind of portraying that onto you. Mm -hmm. Before you said psychosis is mostly like about the self. Oh, for sure. But he's worthy enough of meeting Michael. I see. Isn't that? And Michael's coming to him in the psych ward. Wow, mm -hmm. Michael the Archangel. It's, it's a pretty incredible thing. So, so then, so he says that, and then I say, "Who are you?" And he says, I am that I am. 
He's quoting Shemot, Perek So I saw, had a whole conversation with him about because I had just learned it with Ronnie God, Bennett. Like yeah, exactly. He said he's God, basically. I am that I am. And I'm having this whole conversation. We get to the room and it says the word love on the wall. And he says, what does that, say? What does that spell? And I said, oh, it says love. He goes, what does it say backwards? Evil. I said, oh. And then he says, all right, what if you jumble the letters? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, it says evolve. Okay. And he was like making Midrashim. He's an English professor. And we had a whole conversation and, and he started hallucinating that he saw. And he, he says, uh, oh, he stops talking in the middle of the interview. And it's me, Dr. A-Rod and him. And he says, uh, we say, everything, everything okay? He goes, shh. For like 90 seconds, we're quiet. It's total silence. In the room. And he says, okay, they're gone. Who's gone? He said, okay, Freddy Krueger and Mike Myers, we're here, and they want to kill you. And he points directly at Dr. A-Rod. Well, if he pointed at me, I was getting the heck out of there. <laughs> he pointed at Dr. A-Rod, and, the, the, and then I wanted to see him the next week. Um, the doctor said, you can't see him because he's been punching people unprovoked. And it's, it's to me, you, there's a lot of symbolism to a lot of the things he's saying. And who am I to say what he's saying is not true in an absolute sense? I can't say it's not true that he met God and saying, and he has all the, the planets in his hands. He said all these different things. But at the end of the day, it's a shame to have to say it. It's a shame to have to put it all into words. And I think that's what this haiku is saying. The long night, the sound of the water says what I think. There is a tremendous relief of all that stuff in just being able to be the sound of the water. Also, a little, like, obviously you're hearing the sound, but besides that, it's like a sensory deprivation. Like, nighttime, you don't see anything. Mm -hmm. You know, you just focus on one thing, or not focus, unfocus. Yeah. Have you been able to sensory I've, I've done one. I, uh, there's a great place in Brooklyn. I, I did it for, like, it's a pretty good deal. Um, But, yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible experience. How long are you on there? It's, like, one one hour only. Yeah. But you could do longer if you want. Wild. You know, it is. It's a wild. It wasn't that long. It's, it kind of flew by. It, it does it, fly it, by. Like you're thinking for a little, and then like you don't fall asleep, but you kind of wake. Yeah. Right there. What is it? It's it's you so you go in like a saline thing, like the Dead Sea, and you float in it, and it's a around body temperature. Yeah, it's like that much water, yeah. like a tube. You go in, you lie down, yeah. you just float, and they close it, and there's no no light, sound, nothing. No sound. Dark, dark. Darkness, no. absolute darkness. Does it smell like anything else? No. no. Yeah. And if you want, you could play sounds, but that Just kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a pretty incredible experience. Uh, I, I got to do it again. I think oh, yeah. interesting enough that, that that can lead to uh, to like, visual experiences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I actually almost did that. There's a thing they call the Gansfeld effect, like the medical what is that? side of this. So I read online, if you take a, a ping pong ball, cut it in half, and put one on each eyelid, <laughs> and, uh, and you listen to the white noise, wow, then you could start hallucinating. Oh, my it's goodness. It's the effect, and it's uh, very You're real. going to try that at first. Ten minutes, and, so. ten, ten minutes, and ten minutes, I saw like a pterodactyl figure move across my... Uh, like my the regular page. white... Yeah, so basically, like you're, the white noise is also visually sort of uh, doing, visually mm -hmm. creating like a blur of sensation. Mm -hmm. And white noise music, it's, it's all of the frequencies at the same volume. 
So it's like pure, like indis- you can't discriminate anything from it. Sick. And then the eye thing, yeah. So there's something about blurring your your senses, I think, that can uh, <laughs> lead to more mystical things. And it's almost like synesthesia at that point, where where the the boundary between one sense and another becomes unclear, and they start to kind of mix into each other. That's that's an incredible. I got to try that. We'll do it. Okay, next week we're bringing in ping pong balls for everybody and some white noise for the hour. That's gonna be great. Yeah, <laughs> that's gonna be fun. Here's another good one. The wild geese do not intend to cast their reflection. The water has no mind to receive their image. All right. I don't know if this is a haiku or not, but but the the message is right as the geese are flying over the. The, the pond or the lake. Mirror. Exactly. It's like a mirror. The water has no mind to receive their image or to reflect it. It just does it immediately. Or like the same way when you, with Flintstones, when you're hitting them against each other. Do they think before they spark? No. And to be honest, the same thing is going on at all times. You just don't realize it for all of us. Did I, did I decide to decide to decide to do that? It just happened. I just noticed it. And this is a little scary for some people. But what I've thought about today, I was thinking I'm about scary. it. Yeah. It's very it's a relief. It's it, it can be both, I think. Because on the one hand, you can experience it as like all of it, I'm doing all of it in a way, or all of it's doing me. Then where am I? Oh my God, what do, what control do I have? Do I have no control? Do I have and the paradox is where we live. We live in the in-between of all of it's doing me and I'm doing all of it. What's it? Whatever's going on yeah. in your experience. It's, all five it's senses. Like the, it's like the it and it is raining. I think of it as. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> What's that it? It is raining. It is raining. Yeah, it's like it's that. It's like it's sort of guy. Yeah. whole word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Exactly. Yeah, I never thought about that. It's like, a, it's like an English poem. Yeah. Yeah. Why does a noun always have to start a verb? Exactly, and that's that's kind of the point here, and and the experience of the of this type of thing is like there's the verb without the noun. There doesn't have to be a center of the experience. There's just the experience. Um, and when when you talk about the the mind not planning beforehand to do something, that's Zen. The greatest Zen masters were the ones who. We're able to just act spontaneously. So there's the famous story of the Zen master who uh, he's, he's, he noticed one of the waitresses was very smart and, and deft. And he decided to test her in a Zen kind of a way. So he takes one of the coals from the center of the table and immediately she's she's coming in. And he immediately he, he hand, she they basically have to do whatever you're, you're asking of them. So he he takes the coal and he's handing it to her. Immediately, she extends the sleeves of her kimono. And she takes it in her hands with the kimono, and then she puts it in the sink in the other room. And then she's like, all right, I want to test him now. So she comes back in the room, and she takes the tongs and takes one of the coals. He immediately produces a cigarette. Thank you. Just what I needed. Uh, and there's a there's a fun element to this, because you don't know what's going to happen next. And it's not contrived. It's just right here, right now. And there's so many stories of like, the Zen masters with their students and the guy's holding a stick and he says, all right, who can tell me what this is? And one student tries to say one thing. He gets a, he gets a hit on his head. The other student tries to say, no, he gets a hit on his head. The third student grabs the stick and hits the master on the head. He got it. 
<laughs> to me, this is exactly what it's about. And, and sometimes that's what's happening with all of us. We're getting a, a hit on the head. And if life is your guru, if the storyline of your life is your guru, that's the way you can treat it. No one's stopping you, right? So I think this stuff is just a lot of fun. Awakening is not to know what reality, what this reality is, right? So what does that mean? As butterflies come to the newly planted flowers, Bodhidharma says, I know not. All right, so it's about not knowing. It's about... You know, the, the the people who think that they know actually don't know. And the people who know that they don't know, they're the ones who know. <laughs> exactly. Mikey, uh, Mike. <laughs> yes. Mike. How come? It's interesting for, for, for this whole, this whole model to try and clear your mind. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they talk in such a twisted manner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what's going on and the roundabout way of speaking is is almost like a, a pathway for you to use toward to to be able to play their game they're inviting you to play with them that's ah. what this is all about uh, so they're engaging you to get involved with to to clear your mind exactly and like we always say it's like a finger pointing at the moon instead of going and sucking in that finger Follow the trajectory of where it's pointing and see the moon for yourself, right? And that's the beauty here um, is, is just that experience that they're trying to open you to. Um, I, I heard it. I, there's a, uh, I just wrote it in as part of, you know, introspection. Yeah. So there, there's a big resurgence on a rock star that during my you know, younger years, like when I was in your zone, yeah. sly, sly in the family stone. So Sly was like the rock star of the 70s. And mm -hmm. now he's 81 and he wrote a life is right book. But he says in it, he says, don't blame the mirror when you look into it and you see yourself. In other words, you can't, you can't do it, which is like, I'm thinking of all these things here. It's like a twisted. No, you're so, you look in the mirror, you're angry. What are yeah. you angry about? Or you're looking in the mirror and you're, you're confused. Mm. Don't blame the mirror. Do something about it. Do something about yourself. Take control of yourself. But when the next line here, you say Nirvana is samsara. Ah, uh, so, yes. I just looked up samsara. It says wandering. But I thought Nirvana is like ecstasy. You know? Great question. Great question. So why is that something I wanted to bring up? Well, the beauty is, from, from the Buddha's perspective, Buddha just meaning the one who wakes up, this is a person who is seemingly awakened. This is somebody who is seeing reality for what it is. Well, the great wisdom that this awakened person has, thank you, the great wisdom that this person has to tell us is nirvana is samsara. What you think is the being lost is also part of the nirvana. Somehow it's one. You can think about it as two sides of the same coin, as you can't have an inside without an outside, you can't have good without evil, you can't have positive without negative. That's one way of thinking about it. But I think it's a little deeper than that even. It's that the experience of nirvana itself kind of shows you that the whole time that you were thought you were experiencing samsara and this wheel of birth and death and being lost in it and not being at peace, that whole time you were actually in nirvana and you just didn't realize it till now. 
still now and just to quote what we quoted last week, my favorite, you know, I'm going to read it again because I love it so much. And we have some new faces. My favorite quote that I've ever probably read. I don't want to hype it up too much, but I really, really love it. I, well, no, I can't take that back. Forget I said anything, but let's just listen to the quote. Buddha said, I consider the positions of kings and rulers as that of dust motes. I observe treasure of gold and gems as so many bricks and pebbles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds of fruit and the greatest lake in India as a drop of oil on my foot. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusion of magicians. I discern the highest conception of emancipation as golden brocade in a dream and view the holy path of the illuminated one as flowers appearing in one's eyes. I see meditation as a pillar of a mountain, nirvana as a nightmare of daytime. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. This is somebody who is letting go constantly. This is somebody who is seeing the great and the small, the moral and the immoral, all of it in one picture and just seeing it all in a dancing. And not in terms of good and evil, the way we cling to it, but instead like nirvana as a nightmare of daytime. That to me is exactly like what you're saying here, ID, of nirvana is samsara, right? The nightmare of daytime. What's samsara? Samsara is the wheel of birth and death. So it's like you can be chained to the wheel of samsara with chains of iron, which mm -hmm. means you can be chained to it with sin, quote unquote, or you can be chained to it with chains of gold, with righteousness. You can't escape it. You can't escape it. And in both scenarios, you're chained to it. So in order to escape it, you, you can't cling to righteousness. And you also, I mean, you definitely can't cling to sin, but you also can't cling to righteousness. But the reason I love this quote is because it has exactly what we were just saying. Nirvana is the same as a nightmare of daytime. And if you think about it, what does that mean, a nightmare of daytime? It's almost like right. a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. Yeah, but again, that's a twisted thing. Nightmare. Exactly. There is at night. So what do you, the daytime. Exactly. So here they're inviting you to be confused. What they call a great doubt. Can I, can I, can yeah, I, sure. So there's a poem that I wrote that's expressly trying to, you know, Play on all these contradictions. It's called Title Untitled. <laughs> so, um, Amazing. Uh, but you know, Mikey, every yeah. every reference in Nirvana is like is like almost like it's almost like a it's like a negative or a depressing thought. I thought Nirvana is like a peak experience. There you go. So it's trying to disabuse you of that thought, and that it's not it's not trying to be uh, something that's totally good, and it's also not trying to be something that's totally evil. But it it just is. It's the absolute experience of what is right now right try to sell you as much on it exactly it's not like it's not like a acid trip exactly you know? it's, you're just going to be 100 you know. um but i, I just want to say that yeah, really yeah. Quick. so go, something that i wrote when i was in a very depressed state and i think that's yeah. when those contradictions and like writing this poem helped take those contradictions and realize that you mm. can exist with the contradiction yeah so uh it goes it goes my mind runs elsewhere, yet nowhere at all. 
a crowded empty space addicted to withdrawal. The numbness of sensation mm. overflows my empty heart. It holds itself together as it tears itself apart. The fall is rising. The silence is deafening. Certainty is doubting. Answers are questioning. Distance is beckoning. The self is now a stranger whose safety is in danger. Love is trapped behind black walls. The heart gives off some distant calls, but its sound is just a whisper. Swallowed by its noisy veins, the mind has closed its doors. No more room inside its brain. All is cramped so tightly that nothing can escape except the silent scream inside me that swears I've gone insane. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Very, very, very powerful. I love that. All the contradictions, yes. Yeah, no, the, the, and the thing with contradictions is we are all that contradiction. Yeah. And I, I, you know, before you got here, we, we kept talking about that, that, that we live in this space of contradiction. Mm -hmm. We live in this space of am I spirit or am I physical? Mm -hmm. Am I mind or am I matter? Mm -hmm. Am I good or am I evil? Am I just the dance of these different molecules or am I the storyline of being the son of these parents and the brother of these people? And it's, it's all of them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a tremendous relief in just being the sound of the water, <laughs> just letting it all go. Right. And, and to me that, that is the psychotherapy bit of this, which is that to save us, from losing our minds like you ended with right. yeah. is this realizing that the contradictions are only in your mind or and, that there's nothing wrong with contradiction right there's nothing like for example true and false like Leibniz says that true and false comes out of the the aesthetic feeling of contradiction mm -hmm. false and aesthetic like yeah. it's a it's just a feeling yeah of contradiction Exactly. And therefore, you assume that there's such a thing as actual true and false mm -hmm. when it's really just an experience. Exactly. And we were talking about David Hume earlier today in the in the Banyas. And all logic really is just a slave of the passions or the rider evolved to serve the elephant. If the elephant is like your lizard brains, the rider just evolved to serve that elephant. Like, And the, the cerebral cortex, the outermost part of the brain, which is like the crowning jewel that we have that makes us more than the animals – this thing that endows us with logic and reason really is just an offshoot of the immediate sensation of the lizard brains. It really grows out of it. Exactly. Literally. And the point of that is don't get too lost in what it's trying to tell you. Don't right. get lost in the, in the logic and the rationale. Exactly. That's what I was thinking now. I said, you know, if someone's confused, this will finish the guy off. <laughs> <laughs> No, in other words, right. the truth and imagine so much in some in some of the great motivators is simplistic. Like Wayne Dot that my guy, Dr. Yeah. Wayne Dyer, right? Dyer's message has a one sentence line. He goes, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. Period. Exactly. I love it. I love it. And you know what, Ticknot, we spoke about this last year. And I, the reason I loved what you said so much is because it was exactly like what we were saying from Ticknot Han, where he was saying. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Well, I've always said right, perfect. And and the whole point of it is the idea of being peace. What when you really have a mystical experience and you go through all the ups and downs, and you allow your ego the opportunity to inflate itself as much as it wants, deflate itself as much as it wants, do all of this whole rigmarole. All right. 
at the end of the day, the deepest truth somehow passed on to us by a lot of these people who have seen is we are peace. We are the peace that is the universe, that is this ineffable reality. And there's nothing you have to do in this moment to be that because you already are it. You know song, Heart of Life by Don Mayer? No. Mikey, you could also use that line that you like that I that I that I that I really the dire another dire thing that we spoke about last year. He says when you when you change the way you look at things, the things yes. change. Yes. Right. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Right. That says it all. It's That's if it. you if your perspective on things is different, those things are different. You know this guy ID. Hey, hi. <laughs> David Hittery here. Oh, how are you? <laughs> Good to see you. You're in the right hands here. So you can this see is my this is my mentor and my teacher. Oh my god! I do a group. Hi guys. How are you? I got to make a cameo one night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it'll be next. That's it. One hundred percent. Um, should, let, should we end with one more quote? Let's see. Wait, scroll down. I see something Japanese, Mikey. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You had, you made my night. That's it. I'm out. I love it. I love it. Who's Takuan? I never heard of him. Takuan. Let's see. Takuan. Oh, baby. When Yun Men was asked for the ultimate secret of Buddhism, he replied, dumpling. dumpling. In the words of the Japanese master Takuan, when a monk asks, what is the Buddha? The master may raise his fist. When he is asked, what is the ultimate idea of Buddhism? He may exclaim, even before the questioner finishes his sentence, a blossoming branch of the plum or the cypress tree in the courtyard. The point is that the answering mind does not stop anywhere, but responds straight away without giving any thought to the felicity of an answer. Wow. Right? The point being spontaneity. The point being immediately. Right? right? So if he's asked this very big philosophical question, right. what's the meaning of oh, dumpling? <laughs> to me, I love that. I, I think, think the meaning of his name is. Yeah. <laughs> it could be but, whatever you're experiencing at this moment, you know. But Mike, how do you wrap this into Zohar? I see Zohar's on the bottom. Oh, yes. So what did I hear? Let's see. Zohar. Oh, actually Zohar. with the Zohar. Uh during the period before the world was manifested, there were no names. The moment the Buddha arrives in the world, there are names. And so we clutch hold of forms. In the great Tao, there's absolutely nothing secular or sacred. If there are names, everything is classified in limits and bounds. Therefore, the old man of west of the river, Matsu, said, it is not mind, it is not Buddha, it is not a thing. Wow. The point of this being that when we name things, they become things. But before Adam was there to call things these different things, they weren't those things. And that's why when we talk about Bereshit, all this whole time in the Zohar, we've been discussing Bereshit, creation from different perspectives, we realize we are the ones creating the world in any given moment, just by our experiencing of the world. So you ask yourself, is your brain in the world or is the world in your brain? Again, it's a contradiction, but it's both. Hmm. It might sound self-centered of me to say that, but I would have no idea of the world unless my brain was in this world. Well, that, that can that's connected to... Um... There's a linguistic difference in Hebrew versus English. There's two different theories of time. Hmm. In in Hebrew, the word etmol and machar yeah. 
Etmol is old, which one is it? Etmol is yesterday. So yesterday has mul, which means facing. Wow. So hmm. the past is in front of you and the future is behind you because you don't know what's going to happen. It could sneak up on you. So it's about your, it uh, talks about time in relation to when you say the Tanei Esim Shanim, the Tanai, 20 years presented to your face or something like that. But in, in English, it's based on the history of the Western tradition of science. So we perceive our conceptual framework of time mm-hmm. is based on the theory of a point moving out of line. Yes. So we say that the future is in front of us and the past is behind us. And a more panoramic view of time is, it's just every so moment. Is, to the past. Yeah. You can see the past, but you can't see the future. Yeah. That's, that's really... And you're in the present. Mm-hmm. And somehow every yes. moment is connected to this one in a in a web form, almost like one giant picture. Yeah. But I, I know we, we're a little bit over time now. Uh, maybe we'll end with one last idea from the Zohar. We could read one thing just to get your, your palate a little wet. Uh, so, Bereshit, in the beginning, Rabbi Shimon opened, I have put my words in your mouth from Yeshayahu. How vital it is for a human being to engage in Torah day and night for the for Akadosh Baruch who listens to the voice of those who occupy themselves with Torah and every word innovated in Torah by one engaged in Torah fashions one heaven. So beautifully, it's showing you the the mystical element of it is because our words and our learning and our experience is so powerful. When we invite God in, into our lives, when we invite Torah into our lives, it's in a mystical sense, in a spiritual experiential sense. Every word of Torah that you're learning is fashioning a heaven. A heaven because it's a relationship between you and God. It's a, it's a realm in which you can enter as God's guest and be in a loving relationship with God. We'll continue this next week, but I want you to, to you know hopefully have a week full of this. A week full of inviting God into the small moments, into just the experience in the here and now in which you can be like uh, Rabbi Haya and be overwhelmed at how much God loves you as an individual and how much God values you as an individual and how much you value all of God's creations. Baruch Adonai Amen. Amen.